Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our class this evening. Like Kurt said, we're getting into the last chapter of our study. And I was looking at the paper that was handed to me when the teacher, the paper that was handed out to the teachers had a, has a paragraph in here like, and it, it spells out the goal of the study. And it says in here, the goal of this study is to familiarize ourselves with the early Anabaptist leaders who felt that mainstream Christianity as a whole had strayed from the early church teachings and biblical truths and to be reminded that we are Anabaptists not just because we were born into the family but because we believe it best describes the way of Christ. So hopefully we're accomplishing that goal as we go through the book. A number of, well, many years ago, I was at a uh, construction site many miles from here, and it was an area that there weren't many, if any, Anabaptists in the, in the surrounding areas. So. Um, the people that were working there didn't have any experience with, with the Anabaptist lifestyle or, or ways. And uh, there was one crew that was working there, and I, I, heard, I overheard them talking. One of, I'm not sure if it was the owner's employee or who it was, but someone on the site was asking questions. You mean you don't, you don't drive a car? How do, you, how do you function like that? You don't drive a car? You don't have electricity? How's that even possible? How can you, how can you live like that? And he said, why would, you, why would you do that? Why would you plague yourself like that? And then uh, the answer the person gave him, he said, well, it's a lifestyle. It's not for everyone. And I was thinking, I never forgot that. When, I mean, this is years ago. And I was thinking, it's a lifestyle. Um, is that all we have to offer? Is it just a lifestyle? And if, if that's really all it is, um, some unique way of living, some strange culture, if that's all that it is, um, it really doesn't have much value. There was an article that stood out to me in a, a recent DNI newsletter that I just want to look at quickly before we get started. And maybe, I'm not sure, it might have been in our mailboxes here. But I... I was looking through this article in the newsletter, and it's written by Henry Blank from, from DNI, and he was kind of explaining the, 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 their mission that they are working with. And, and he's, he's saying in the article, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but just, just to, to summarize it, he's saying that the mission of DNI is to plant uh, Anabaptist churches in among the unreached people of the world and and he says uh, when I'm referring to Anabaptist churches I'm not saying we're going to copy and paste Mennonite culture from Lancaster County into Asia, Africa and uh, South America when I use the term Anabaptist I'm referring to a way of interpreting scripture which results in, a, in an obedient and transformed life. And what makes the Anabaptist way unique, and this is a quote 
from the article here. He said, what makes the Anabaptist way unique is that it is, a, it is this commitment, is that this is a commitment to obedience, and it's not just a personal thing between me and God, but it's a commitment in community to God's word and to each other. So he's saying that's what makes us maybe somewhat different from other Christian groups. It's, it's more of a commitment to community than, than just simply ourselves. So I thought that was an interesting way. It's not, it's not just a strange lifestyle, but it's a, a way of thinking. It's a way of interpreting scripture. So our, our uh, last chapter that we're going to look at tonight is entitled, Can These Distinctive Beliefs Be Kept Alive? And the author or the writer here, he starts by saying, it can be kept alive and it will be kept alive. And, and then he um, points out three different ways that this can be accomplished. And the first thing is, first of all, we have to overcome the threats. Secondly, we have to keep the vision. And thirdly, we have to live the faith. So that's how he has the chapter outlined and that's how we're going to review it this evening. Um, first of all, overcoming the threats. And he has five specific threats lift, listed here. And the first, the first thing he lists as a, as a threat is religious freedom. And um, I think we all know that most of our forefathers came, to, uh, came from Europe into North America so that they could be free from, uh, to free to live out their beliefs and free to, to worship according to the way they believe without any interference or persecution from the government. And many, many were invited here by the leaders at the time. They were invited here because they had a reputation of being good farmers. They were, they were good, um, they were good at what they did. They were hard workers and they were good farmers and uh, the leaders of this country at the time were attracted to that and they thought, well, if we could, if we could bring these people into the country, then it would, it would be good for our, our uh, it would be good for our new country. So they, they, uh, they brought the people in or they, they brought them in, many of them came right into Lancaster County. Um, and over time, they, of course, when they were living here, suddenly they didn't have any uh, persecution. They didn't have any interference from the government. Life was good, it was comfortable. And along with that came prosperity. And I think, um, I think we, we talk about, or, or he, the author here says the threat of religious freedom. I think what he's really saying is the threat of prosperity. And that's what came with the religious freedom. So do you think, do you think that Anabaptists today in general, do you think we, we are more or less wealthy than the average Americans? Any idea? Do you think we are more or less? 
and I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I can, I mean, I have a good idea. Um, the average American worker has an annual income of just under $36,000 a year, for one thing. Um, there is, I read that there is a, a little less than 66% of American households own their own home. So if you just look at where we stack up on, on, that, on those statistics, I think you'll find that we are most likely more wealthy than, than the average Americans. And, that's, and that can be okay and that can be bad. Um, we tend to justify that by saying, well, we work so much harder than some others do, or we have a good work ethic. We, we were brought up in a good way. We have a good work, work ethic. We're frugal. We watch what we spend. We don't spend our money on cigarettes and alcohol and lottery tickets, and therefore, we deserve to have more. Um, and I guess it's all good, but, and the Bible doesn't say that, that a poor person is more spiritual than a, a wealthy person, but the Bible does tell us is that, what the Bible does tell us is that wealth can be very dangerous, and it can lead us to um, becoming self-sufficient, self-dependent, and it can lead to pride, prejudice. We think we're, we're better than others, or money can cause people to think they're better than others. So I think, again, what, what the writer is saying here is that the threat of religious freedom is the threat of, the threat of prosperity. So we have to be aware of that. I was thinking of something, I had something experienced that, something I experienced a few months ago, just after we started studying this book. I wasn't sure I wanted to share it tonight because it's not real positive on, on uh, Anabaptists or Mennonites, um, but I'll, I'll share it just for whatever we can learn from it. Um, I just had gotten this book from Steve, and um, I think it was only a week or two after that, I was just briefing through it and trying to, trying to get a little familiar with what it was. And I had a call from a, a customer in the southern part of Ohio, and he was wanting some work done at his farm. And I said, well, it's a long way from where we're at. Um, I don't really have anybody in the area, but oh, I know, I, I know just who could do that for you. Um, there's a person that I know that moved from a community in northern Ohio to the to the far southern end of Ohio just recently, and I said, I know he's he's a good carpenter, and and he could he could take care of what you're looking for, and he said, you're talking about those Mennonites that are moving into our area, aren't you? And I said, yeah, um, that's who I'm talking about. Well, I'll, I'll have you know one thing, I don't let any of them on my property. So he right away he he did not like that at all. And he said, and I started defending him. I said, why is that? Well, he said, they came in here, and this all happened in the last year or two. He said, they came in here from all other parts of all other states, and they decided they're going to they're gonna have a community in this area. And they bought every farm that they could get their hands on. And he said, they're ruining our community. There's no, there's no way 
those of us that live around here can pay what they're paying for, for the land they're buying. And so he went on like that, and, and finally I told him, well, I think they're good people. I, I said, they're good people. They're not intentionally doing anything wrong. And he said, well, you're just saying that because you're part of them. I know that. And um, so we, we talked a long time, and he said, uh, um, I told him that, I, you know, he said, oh, he went on and said that not only are they buying all the land, you drive by them, they don't even wave at you, they act like you're not there. And, and uh, I said, well, they're not real outgoing, maybe. They're kind of reserved. And so, um, and I was trying to defend them because I knew they were good, I knew they were good people, real good people. And so finally he said, well, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll let them in there. I'll let them, I'll let this one framer come and, and do some work. And, and he did, and it, it went okay, it went fine. But I guess I, I say that just to, just to say that this is the perception that some people have. And I guess just for an awareness, just for an awareness. I don't, I don't know that we can say they did anything wrong. I don't think they did anything wrong, but the p local people sure thought they did. They just felt like they were um, being run over by this conservative group of Anabaptists. Um, so anyway, I think maybe there's times that just because we can don't mean we should. Um, so the first part here is the threat of religious freedom. The second, the second uh, threat that's listed here is the threat of acculturation. I guess I'm saying that properly, acculturation. And the definition of the word is the process of learning and incorporating the values, beliefs, languages, customs, and mannerisms of the new country, of a new country's immigrants and their families let me back up. The process of learning and incorporating the values, beliefs, language, customs, and mannerisms of the new country that immigrants and their families are living in. Or in other words, this means, this is the threat of blending in, just simply fitting in and becoming integrated into society and, and getting to the point where there really isn't much difference between them and us. It's becoming one and the same. And it's, it's just a threat of, of becoming too comfortable here. We, we, we have to continually remind ourselves that this is temporary. This world is not our home. We can't get too comfortable. We can't fit in. The third threat that's referred to here is Protestantism. And it's a threat of a, of a faith-only way of thinking. And I hesitate maybe to call this Protestantism because I know many Protestants that don't think this way at all, but I, I would tend to call it easy believism. We've, we've heard that term. It's, it's, it's a term we hear sometimes. Easy believism. And it's just, it's the view that, that one only needs to believe in Jesus and they're going to be saved. Just pray the prayer and that's where it ends. That's where it starts. That's where it ends. And there's no real conviction of sin. There's no real changed life. And there's no real commitment going forward. It's just a 
faith only, I believe and now I'm saved. And that's, that can be a threat. Um, the Bible tells us, we know the Bible tells us that we are saved by, our, by faith, not by works. But we also know that saving grace is evidenced by good works. So we need, we need works as well as simply faith. So let's not be deceived by the false teaching that says we can pray and continue living the way we're living, living in sin, and, and everything will be fine because that's not what the Bible tells us. The next one on the list here on page 89 is the threat of pietism. And here I would welcome your thoughts on this one because this is, this is uh, something that I read over and over again and tried to understand where the writer was coming from here. Um, what is piety or what is pietism? Pietism is... Um, some synonyms of piety is sanctity, godliness, and holiness. And some antonyms of piety is indifference, coldness, and carelessness. So piety is not a, a church or an organized church or a denomination. It's simply a, a belief. It's an influence. I guess you could call it an influence. Um, and when you look at what piety is and what it's not, I, I've read this again and again. I was thinking, is the author saying the threat of not being pious, or is he, or is he saying the threat of being pious? But I think, I, I think after looking over it, I, I get where he's coming from. Um, a person that is a pietist will put his or her primary emphasis on their personal relationship with Jesus. It's a personal thing. Um, and they will be quick to share their testimony. They will be quick to um, um, tell people or speak out and tell people what God is doing in their life and make it real personal, make their, make their religious experience real personal. And maybe or, or likely church attendance, church membership, um, church structure will take second place to that. So first of all, it's my experience with Jesus. Secondly, it's the church and, it's, and, it's, uh, and the church's mission. So, and you know, what I've, what I've learned is that churches that would tend to become influenced by pietism are churches that one, have a missionary vision. That's an influence of pietism. The, the second thing is churches that have a community outreach program, that's an um, influence of pietism. Thirdly, churches that have Bible study programs, that's an influence of pietism. And churches who may have members stand up and share a personal testimony, that's an influence of pietism. So you look at that and, and say, so, so where is the threat? Isn't that what we what we should be doing, or where, where is this author coming from when he says pietism is a threat to the Anabaptist belief? Um, 
I think what he's, you, you look at this and you say, well, where, does the, where does this scale tip from good, good to bad? And I think what, well, I know what he's getting at is that he's talking about this kind of thinking leading to individualism, where every person is, it's all about me and it's not about us. And it's, it's about ourselves. And in, in 1 Corinthians 12, the, the Bible tells us that we're all parts of the same body and we all make up the church. We all are a part of it. We use our talents. We use our, our abilities or our gifts to, for, for a united purpose for the whole group. And individualist thinking would tend to say, I'm doing what I'm doing just for myself. So I believe, and I know, and I know the model of the New Testament church is, is a model of a group. It's, it's a, a community of brothers and sisters working together to, um, to, for a common goal. So maybe someone else has a, a thought on that. I, uh, that's, and, and I'm sure that can be a threat, and I'm, I know it is a threat, um, but it's, it's one of those things I believe that it can be good and bad. And maybe if, in, in this case, I believe the author is, is saying the same, that it can go from okay to, to, to a threat. That's a threat, yeah, I agree. Okay, the next, the next threat that he has listed here is the threat of legalism. Um, and I like the way the book describes legalism here. The book says legalism is following only the letter of the law without possessing the spirit of it. And legalism is, is uh, simply doing what we do without knowing why we're doing it, I guess. Just we're following tradition, we're following uh, church guidelines without really having a, a good feel for why we're doing what we're doing. Um, we may be blamed for, for being legalistic when we're simply being obedient to God. But it's two different things. Obedience is not legalism. Legalism is doing good things without um, knowing why you're doing them or, or, or feeling like that's going to save you. I, I remember hearing a person at work one time. I overheard uh, two people talking, and, and they were talking about a uh, um, football game that was on TV the night before, and one was saying to the other, what do you, did you... They were talking about the game, and he said, well, did you watch the game? 
And the other person said, well, no, I don't have a television in my house. And they said, you don't have a television in your house, why not? Because the church don't allow it. So that was what I think is a bad answer uh, because really he could have explained many reasons that he didn't have a television in his house, but, but his answer was just, I'm doing what I'm doing because that's what I'm told to do. So that, I think, is an example of, of legalism. That's, that's not really having a good reason for doing what you're doing. Um, you may be doing good things, but maybe not a, a real good reason. So how is legalism, how does legalism become a threat? And maybe it's because doing things a certain way, dressing a certain way, following church guidelines, doing all the right thing um, can tend to give us a sense of false security, maybe. Um, it can make us feel like we're, we're right with God when we may not be. Um, so again, we, we gain our salvation by God's grace through faith, through our faith in Jesus, not by our own works. The Bible says not by our own works, lest we become boastful and proud. So these are the threats that are spelled out here. Maybe someone has the thoughts they want to share on that part of it. Maybe another threat. There's probably many more threats we could add to this list. The next section here is titled Keeping the Vision. And if we're going to uh, preserve the beliefs, if we're going to be keeping these beliefs, we must keep the vision. And the writer outlines four of the basic elements of the vision of the early Anabaptists. And first of all, on page 92, the Anabaptists had a all-encompassing view of Christ. Um, they looked at they looked at Jesus in a certain way, and we need to need to see Jesus in the same way. Not only as the Savior, not only as the the one who saved us, the one who died on the cross and saved us, but as Lord of our life. We need to commit our lives to Him. Um, he not only saves us, but we need to commit our lives to Him and serve him. He's Lord over all the areas of our life. Anabaptists had a clear view of the authority of Scripture. The early Anabaptists believe, and we believe today, that all of the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and we must live accordingly. And you hear more and more in, in other people or in the world around us, people that believe the Bible, but they only believe parts of it. Just they believe this part or that part or, or they think the Old Testament has no value or, or they, they don't look at the whole Bible as the inspired word of God. They'll, they'll pick and choose and that's something that we need to hang on to, the, the clear view of the authority of Scripture. Every, every part of the Bible is the inspired word of God and there's nothing that's unimportant. The Anabaptists 
accepted the biblical view of Christian life characterized by dedication, discipleship, and duty. And that, I believe he's simply saying that we need to understand that we are in a, a spiritual warfare. There's a, there's a battle going on, and it's a battle between good and evil. And we need to keep our focus on, on the end goal as we, as we fight this battle. And we need to see life as a, as a battle. The Anabaptists saw the church as the body, the building, and the bride of, of Christ on earth. Um, and it says this, led, this is what led them to establish this voluntarily free church, this, not this to get away from infant baptism and require a, a believer's baptism. And they viewed themselves as strangers and pilgrims and called all men to surrender and become part of his family. The last section here is entitled Living the Faith. And the writer says, if a person concludes that the distinctive beliefs of the Anabaptists are indeed scriptural and personally chooses to espouse their vision, where does he begin? And then he lifts three three things to be considered if we're going to um, believe. First of all, in order, to be, in order to live out this faith, we must be confident that we, we must assuredly believe, it must be assuredly believed, or we must, we must believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died for our sins and that he is our only avenue to to heaven, we need to first of all start there, and that's um, that's the foundation we need to build upon. Secondly, the faith must be lived, or it will die. Um, we need to again believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and and live that way, live like we believe it, or our faith will um, disappear. An integral part of living the faith is sharing it and sharing the faith not with those of us in our church group but also of, with others in the world around us. Um, it's important that we, the important part of living the faith is sharing the faith with others. So maybe someone has a comment they were or a comment they want to share on the on the lesson here right anyone else I'd like to read a verse in closing here. I would like to read a verse from Hebrews, a familiar verse.
from Hebrews 13, the, we often refer to this chapter as the hall of faith. And just, just thinking of a familiar verse, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 13 um, is a familiar verse that the writer is talking about Abraham, talking about Enoch, talking about Abel, talking about Sarah, talking about all these great men and women of faith. And in verse 13, it says, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. These great people of faith, they, they, uh, they didn't have an easy life. They were living part of God's sovereign plan for the nation of Israel. They were part of God's plan, but they never lived long enough to see the plan be fulfilled. So they had a, probably a, a pretty difficult life, but yet they remained faithful, and they did that um, by, by, I imagine, reminding themselves that there is something better to come. They're strangers and pilgrims. They're, they're not... Uh, at home on this earth. There, there is more to come. Verse 16 says they're desiring a better country. So I think that's an encouragement for, for all of us. We, we try to live out this vision, live out these beliefs, and it can get maybe overwhelming at times or get difficult, but we have to keep our focus just like the, just like the people, the faithful people, people that the Bible is referring to in Hebrews, we need to keep our focus and our, the, on our end goal, and that's the better place to come. So thank you. I think that's all I have to share.